It's episode 39 of the Media Narrative Podcast. I'm Rob Hoschild. How can we help students remember stuff? And one of the most basic ways is what we call retrieval, or retrieval practice, to help students pull information out of their heads. Pooja Agarwal was on her way to becoming an elementary school teacher when she realized that there was this whole field of education research that wasn't finding its way into the classroom. She wound up becoming a scientist as well as a teacher, and her interests led her and a colleague to write a book called Powerful Teaching, Unleash the Science of Learning. This book, it's just out by Pooja Agarwal and Patrice Bain, and I've read it. It's a very useful manual on how to best teach, learn, and really retain what we learn. She has a PhD in cognitive psychology from Washington University in St. Louis, and she is a teaching colleague of mine at Berkeley College of Music. We've talked a lot about teaching over the years, Pooja and I, but one thing I didn't know about her career before our conversation was the struggles that she faced in trying to find her first teaching job. And it was around that same time that she began conducting her own research into the science behind what makes for good teaching. We caught up last month to talk it through. I actually applied for teaching jobs outside of St. Louis or in the St. Louis area. And I applied for maybe teaching positions at 15, 14, or 15 different school districts. I got one interview Mm. and zero job offers. Ouch. And, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that was kind of a wake-up call, both in terms of me and my qualifications and my interests, but also in just the way that K-12 education works in terms of hiring and Mm. their structure. So it just so happened around the same time that my mentors, I was at Washington University in St. Louis, and my mentors had just received a grant from the U.S. Department of Education to do this scientific memory research, but in classrooms. Mm. And that was in 2006. So I met Patrice, and straight after undergrad, I spent that very first year in her classroom eight hours a day, five days a week, observing how she teaches, thinking about the kinds of lab-based principles we study when it comes to memory. And then it was so much fun to almost kind of make up what does it look like to do research in authentic classrooms because no one had literally done that before, Mm. at least in in my little niche and, and world of academia. And so I got to spend every day in Patrice's classroom designing experiments and then starting to carry them out and collect data and it just brought the two together. So I didn't really start out of undergrad teaching, but it came together in a way where I was still in a classroom all the time. Mm, interesting. Why do you suppose that the practice of teaching left science in the laboratory and didn't bring mm-hmm. it into the classroom? I mean, and you talked about anecdotal approaches to teaching as opposed to scientific approaches to teaching. Um, any theories on why it just never, they never really overlapped till you saw that opportunity, you and Patrice? A few different reasons. And I, I guess I'm thinking out loud. Uh, a few different reasons. Often I think about an analogy to medicine. 
So how medicine started out being somewhat anecdotal and very trial and error, and over time it's become much more evidence-based. Mm. And I feel like teaching as a profession has existed as long as or even longer than medicine, but it's still in this phase of figuring out what works and what doesn't, but students are as complex as patients. Access to research, so educator access to research is severely limited, mm. both in terms of literal access to understanding scientific jargon, literal access to paywalls and not being able to download or read journal articles. Right. And because of that, lack of access or understanding or teaching of science in education programs. So when I was getting certified in K-12, there were no textbooks. It was all an older veteran teacher who said, this is how I've taught, therefore, mm -hmm. this is how you should teach. So. I think it's evolved and it's getting to a point where more and more people are interested in looking at, well, teaching is an art and there's still things that we do that are different between how you teach Rob and how mm -hmm. I teach and how everyone teaches, whether it's Berkeley or elsewhere. At the same time, there's also a science to learning and wanting to know what we spend all of these years doing in the classroom if it actually helps students learn. Mm -hmm. So I like that there, the gaps are starting to be bridged, but it's taking a while. Having studied learning all these years, having studied teaching all these years, and, and, and having taught all these years, what do you think are the keys to teaching well, to um, fostering an environment where students can learn well? And this might lead us into the book, but I kind of wanted you to address that in, in as global a way as, as mm -hmm. you're comfortable. Like, what is the key to really teaching well, to fostering someone to, to get after a subject and dig in and learn? I would say a big aspect of teaching well is keeping in mind what you want as a final outcome. So a lot of teachers have a lot of different outcomes. This actually was something that, that sparked my thinking about this was the graduation ceremony at Berkeley this past May. Mm -hmm. And the student speaker had talked about the distinction between purpose and product. I don't know if you remember this. I wasn't there. No. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, the student speaker, in the context of music, was talking about what is the purpose, for instance, of, of creating and releasing an album versus what is the product itself. Mm. So the product being maybe the album, the music, but the purpose being to, to move the listener, to evoke an emotion, to evoke some thoughts. And for me as a teacher, it got me thinking, well, what is my purpose and what is my product? Mm -hmm. And I do believe that the a product of education is to create an informed citizenry that can make good decisions about the world. Mm. A purpose of my teaching is to do that as well. At the same time, for me, I feel like in order to be an informed, brilliant, or at least thoughtful person, you need to learn stuff. Mm -hmm. And you need yeah. to remember stuff. Mm -hmm. And if we spend 12 years in K-12 education, four years with $100,000 on tuition in college, not to mention graduate school and beyond, we want to remember stuff from that educational experience. So to me, a core component of, of good or effective teaching is helping people remember. Mm -hmm. And I know that can kind of take a very big, broad art of teaching down into this very core component. At the same time, if we can help students remember something or anything, I think they're better off for the experience they had. Mm. So for me in college, I can barely remember anything from my classes. I remember really enjoying a Greek mythology class. 
I can't tell you anything about the Iliad yeah. or the Aeneid. Right. It's it's totally gone. But Me I too. remember enjoying the professor, mm-hmm. and I remember going to to a book launch that he had because he had mm. written a book about St. Patrick's Day for some reason. But I can't cool. tell you anything about the content of the class. Yeah. Yeah. So at least in a college setting and lifelong learners, what is it that we want to remember as teachers? What is our product and purpose? Mm. So one of the core components based on research that I find fascinating is how can we help students remember stuff? Mm. And one of the most basic ways is what we call retrieval or retrieval practice to help students pull information out of their heads. I took that Greek myth class. I haven't had to think about the Iliad since college, Mm -hmm. right? So I don't need that information. It flows out of my head because I don't need it anymore. That's how humans work. But at the same time, I remember a whole lot from my psychology classes because I continue using it Mm -hmm. all the time. You know, in in writing, for instance, you continue teaching your students. You talk about writing. You yourself are are a writer. That sounds really weird in my (laughs) head as someone who's written a book. Um, (laughs) But you can correct me on the grammar, right? At the same time, you may not remember anything from an economics class. Mm. And so it's it's like the basic phrase goes, you use it or you lose it. Right. And in the context of teaching, so often we might tell students a lesson but never give them the opportunity to retrieve it. Mm-hmm. And at Berkeley, my students have pointed out, or, or I have a fun discussion with them about practicing their instruments, Yeah. right? How do you get better at, at being a musician? Well, duh, you have to practice your instrument. So I look at them and say, well, at least in our class, in psychology and liberal arts, you are going to practice your knowledge. You practice your instrument, you get better at it, we're going to practice your knowledge. So with retrieval, you're pulling that information out, you're using it, it helps elaborate on it, there's a mental struggle. So one question, um, kind of a trivia fact, I haven't asked you yet, Uh um, is do you remember anything about King Tut? And ancient Egypt. Well, this isn't fair because I, I've read your book and um, listened to your podcast interview with yes. um, Jen Gonzalez, mm-hmm. is it? The Cult of Pedagogy, which is a really great podcast, by the way. Um, I've listened to several episodes. Oh, She's good. good. Um, so I know that he was 10 or 11 or 9 or something yes. like that. Yeah. yeah. So that that's not Let's fair. Let's see. What's another <laughs> trivia fact? All the ones off the top of my head, okay. ironically, with memory, are all listed in the book. Right. Um, so I don't know. What's what's one thing you learned from, um, did you ever take a math class, like a calculus class in college? Um, yes, I took a, God, I took a calculus class my first semester, and it was the worst I did in any class, and I'm not that bad at math. You know what? I can remember one thing from a poli-sci class. Would okay. it help if I mentioned sure. that? Sure, yeah. It's, as you were talking about this, for some reason, this is one thing I remember from 35 years ago in a poli-sci yeah. class freshman year that politics is about self-interest. That was what this professor oh. talked about over and over again, all semester long, and everything he brought up, everything he lectured about was the idea that it, that government is driven by the engine of self-interest, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it certainly feels like that's um, coming to bear these days. <laughs> um, so that's one example of something Why do you I think remember. you remember that? I, you know, I, he was a good lecturer, but I, I feel like he kept mentioning it in every class. Mm-hmm. He 
He repeated the idea. He tied it to something new, interleaving, maybe. Mm-hmm. That's one of the concepts from the book. Um, and, and I think he just, it was sort of like the theme of the class, and he just yeah. kept coming back to it. Yeah. And that's also um, kind of a, a tool or strategy for memory mentioned in the book is called spacing. Mm. So oh, when we yeah. space things out in the classroom, we might cover you know, a week on language development in a cognitive science class, and then we move on. Mm -hmm. It's like there's language in a box based on the chapter in a textbook moving on. And with spacing, you just want to come back to it every so often. Mm -hmm. So it's like learning a language. I am trying to improve my Spanish, but if I don't have the opportunity to speak it, if it takes me six months to a year to finally use it, it takes a while. There's yeah. like an extra struggle, let alone the embarrassment. We could do the rest of the podcast in Spanish <laughs> if you want to. No. no. Do you speak Spanish? <laughs> no. Okay, good. That makes me feel better. Um, but it kind of comes mm. back, right? Yeah. And it comes back a little faster. Yeah. And that's something really fascinating about how memory works. When you space things out instead of a sort of one and done, you remember them better. Mm-hmm. So if this professor keeps coming back to this theme, and not in a repetitive way, yeah. but in the sort of course tying together theme is spacing and stories also help people remember right and we know that sort of intuitively I've had fun talking with my music students this semester about stories and how to phrase them and how music is a story and how you even decide what goes the beginning and end of a story like the beginning and end of a set list Mm. oh right sure and so we have these intuitive notions of memory but again going back to my experience in college it's like oh people People do research on this yeah. <laughs> while you remember the beginning and ends of set lists or the right. beginning and ends of movies. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. No, no, it's all related. And, um, you know, one thing I want to say about the book uh, is that it's very practical. It's very much geared um, and very helpful for teachers. So as a teacher, uh, it, there's so much helpful information in here. And it's so it um, so much of it is common sense in, mm-hmm. a, in a way like it's very original but it it makes it just immediately resonates it's intuitive exactly and there's a lot of exercises that you give which i haven't done all those exercises (laughs) yet as i admitted earlier but um i I find that that's really helpful too that so the book itself is a model of what you're talking about yes because at the end notes for every chapter there's like a factoid or there's some there's some like James Madison is the fourth president. There you go. That's in your and yes, you know, I remember yeah. that. That was in the end notes of one of your chapters, I don't know where. And yep. so in and you have these little factoids and questions and statements mm-hmm. mixed in with things like this book was written, you know, like an MLA citation yeah. at the end. And um, and then there's sort of exercises and then there's this end guide that goes sort of re- recaps a lot of things. So I assume that that all of that was very intentional. Yes. What I'm wondering is when you were, was that in your thinking all along mm-hmm. that we're going to use the book as a model for what we're talking about the whole time? Yes. Ah. So there are a lot of books that are coming out uh, more and more frequently and recently on the science of learning. So what is all this research on how we remember? How does it relate to everyday life? I have this website, retrievalpractice.org, mm-hmm. where you can sign up for emails. I have a list of maybe 12 books I recommend about the science of learning. S- I love these books. 
Something I find very ironic is that they're structured in a way to not help you learn (laughs) and to not help you remember what you just spent hours reading. Mm -hmm. So a book that has a chapter summary, I'm sure we've had this experience in college and even today in nonfiction books, for instance, if there's a chapter summary, you just kind of skip to that to get the gist and then you move on. Or maybe you enjoyed the book, but then the next time you come back to it, you go to the Mm -hmm. chapter summary. That doesn't help you remember. That's why you have to go back to the book. (laughs) <laughs> right? Yes. Um, so recent, not recently, actually, a few years ago, I read this book called Essentialism that I oh, right. really, really like. Yeah. And I remember a lot of the book because I keep talking about it. Mm-hmm. I don't have to go back to reread the book. What is that book about in a nutshell? Oh, uh, in a nutshell, it's I guess it's about deciding or thinking more intentionally about what is essential when you make decisions. Mm. So um, there are two things or multiple things that stuck with me about the book, so I don't have to reread it. One of them is this idea of trade-offs, which is a bit, again, common sense. But mm-hmm. if I do, if I go out and hang out with friends tonight, that means the trade-off means I may have to stay up late grading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm going to make that intentional decision knowing what the consequences are. Right. So keeping that trade-off in mind mm-hmm. is helpful. Something I also like from essentialism is Uh, and I was just telling a friend this yesterday, is oftentimes we have a hard time saying no to things. Mm. (laughs) This is pervasive in everyday life for every person. Chocolate. Yes. (laughs) But especially participating in things. Serving Uh, on committees, helping people with various things. And so essentialism makes this point. It helps you think about how to say no to people Mm. and requests. A, a, a fun, and focus on the essential. Is that kind yes. of what the idea is? Yeah. And a fun distinction is that we have a tendency to say a fast yes, like, oh, yeah, I'll help you on that committee, or happy to help you create those invitations for a wedding, or happy to take out the dog for you, yeah. right? We're, we're a very quick yes society and a slow no. We think very deliberatively of, gosh, if I say no, they're going to get pissed off, and how do I say no in the right way mm-hmm. so that they don't get pissed off? Yeah. And in, essential, in essentialism, they talk about how we need to switch to being a fast no mm. and a slow yes. Oh, that's good. And so even just asking for more information. Right. Or saying, gee, you know, I can't give it the attention it deserves, but here are two other people you should contact. Uh-huh, yeah. So Essentialism is just a book that stuck in my mind because yeah. I retrieve it. Yeah. I use the strategies every day. Mm. So in Powerful Teaching, we try to model the same thing. We yeah. don't have chapter summaries. Instead, we have questions throughout the book, both about trivia facts, but also, hey, remember that thing from chapter two that you right. read? How does that relate to chapter six? Yeah. And that incorporates spacing, that incorporates retrieval of pulling information out instead of getting stuff into our heads with summaries and, you know, rereading. It's really great. I mean, uh, I'm looking forward to spending more time with it because I think all of that really helps reinforce it. And I do now know what the four main uh, power tools Mm -hmm. that you talked about uh, in the book. I think I understand those pretty well. And we've started, we've talked about most of them at this Mm -hmm. point, I think. But the... um, you mentioned music and you mentioned writing, and this is one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because when I first heard about your research and that you were working on this book a couple of years ago, I think that's when I first heard about it, because yeah. you, your email <laughs> uh, newsletter is great, and I do recommend that people sign up for that. Um, it's really good, and a lot of information and links. And um, and they're meant to be 30 seconds. Yeah, it's bite-sized yes. kind of stuff, yes. which is 
the way to go. I have very little patience to read <laughs> blogs. <laughs> Uh, to be yes. honest. Oh, yeah. We've talked about this. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so when I first heard about this, and I went to one of the, your presentations that you did uh, at Berkeley for the teachers uh, a couple years ago, I think it was, and and you talked about retrieval practice. You mm-hmm. talked about the challenge of getting students to remember and reversing the equation of not just sort of um, spraying them or dumping information on them, but asking them to retrieve information and that that's a more powerful uh, learning modality. And I thought, oh, well, that how does that apply to writing and music? Mm. Um, because that's what I'm, well, Ed, I teach writing. I don't teach music, but I play music. But uh, so to what degree do these techniques, which are so much about remembering and building a knowledge base, relate to developing a skill like writing uh, or an artistic uh, endeavor like writing or music? How, does it help with those sorts of things too? It does. And with writing and music and math, for instance, all of these kind of skills that we want to get better at languages, they all already have this component of retrieval. You had to practice writing, you got to practice your instrument. You got to practice uh, your language, and that's all retrieval. Right, is getting information out. An example I give about music is you wouldn't become good, you wouldn't be prepared for a gig if you just watch someone else play, mm. and then suddenly get on stage and play. Mm. You have to practice in right. advance to know how well you're going to do, to know what you're going to screw up, to know what you need to practice. You have to practice to know what to practice, right? So all of those skills already incorporate a lot of that. We talk about one of the power tools or strategies in the book is interleaving. And this comes in handy for the skills-based learning in particular, where so often we tend to go start to finish, start to finish with things. So in music, students tend to practice a song from start to finish. And what happens naturally with human memory is we remember the beginning of a song, we remember the end, and we don't remember the stuff in the middle. Ah, yes. And same with writing. You might remember key concepts that you've learned at the beginning and end. You might remember the beginning and end of a story, and you try to model that, but we don't often think about the middle. So with interleaving, an example from music is I had a student come to me a few years ago now, and she couldn't remember the lyrics for a song. And she kept a jazz standard, and she kept playing the song on her guitar and singing the lyrics start to finish, start to finish. So I just told Jalen, you know, let's let's just start in the third verse. Don't worry about it. Just muddle through it. I'm not grading you. Mm-hmm. Just start on the third verse. And she kind of got through it, and I gave her some feedback, another strategy or power tool we talk about. And then I had her sing the fifth verse, and then the second one, and then the first one, and the fourth one, and then the second half of the song, and the first half of the song. And when she put it all together, she had it in 15 minutes. Mm. It was the coolest thing to wow. see. And in the right order. Yes. Yeah. Right. Wow. Because by mixing it up, you then, it, by interleaving, you then have to discriminate. Okay, are these lyrics from the third verse or the second? Mm. Um, is what I'm saying in what order does it go? And so another example for math, very simplistically, is if students are learning addition subtraction and division problems, let's say word problems, they know the first tenor addition, then they know to switch to subtraction, then they know to switch to division. Mm. But if you mix all those different problems up, now they have to think, okay, what is the strategy I need to use? They can't just kind of blindly go through it. Mm. So interleaving comes in handy with languages, math, writing in particular. So 
breaking a pattern that you think might help you to learn efficiently can help you to actually learn more efficiently. Yes, and that's a key for all these power tools yeah. that is intuitive, again, for musicians, but but yet not intuitive, is that challenging our learning makes our learning better. Mm. When learning is easy, you just forget it. So with students, you know, students might cram for an exam, pull an all-nighter and cram and do really well on the exam, and this has happened to most all of us, you cram, you do well on the exam, and then, Rob, what happens after you ace that exam? You forget everything. You forget you everything, yep. right. And why do you forget everything? Because it was so easy. Mm. You're, forced, you're, you're focused on cramming this information into your head. Right. In my class, for instance, I don't have high-stakes exams. I have small quizzes every week. So students don't really cram because they're not high-stakes, and they, they literally can't cram because mm. I ask them things every week. And so by creating this extra mental effort they have to retrieve on the quizzes and I space it out over time, they remember more from my class instead of just cramming and forgetting it all. Mm -hmm. The idea of coming back to something um, every once in a while and then seeing that you don't remember it and then maybe you have to go back and mm -hmm. relearn it. And I've seen that happen over and over in my life. And, and yeah. That one, um, that one really resonated with me, as did all the all the power tools that you mentioned in the book. Um, do you think now the book is really geared for teachers? Yes. But I'm wondering if you think that some of these concepts are so universal, and like you, you right. talk, you've talked about memory so much, mm -hmm. and obviously as we grow older memory is more of a struggle and mm -hmm. this is there's all this talk of you know people should do these word games and puzzles yeah those and don't that, those don't work that those don't work no huh? that doesn't make your brain <laughs> stop stronger wasting your money you younger no exercise and sleep exercise and based sleep on are, a whole lot of research exercise and sleep are the keys to um having a functioning brain yes in, staying in sharp okay yeah and but what about these sort of techniques do these would these techniques help as well Yes. So they come into handy. Um, I mean, retrieval. So even as you're older, we, you still have to remember stuff, mm -hmm. how to get somewhere. Yeah. And the more you retrieve how to get somewhere instead of relying on Google Maps, you'll remember it better. And that's yeah. retrieval. And yeah. of course, that works when you're younger, but that works when you're older, too. If you mm -hmm. move to a new city and you always use Google Maps, you're not going to know how to get around. Right. But if you practice this retrieval, you'll remember it better. So another example is that a lot of people complain they can't remember people's names. Mm -hmm. You meet someone new, you can't remember their name at all. And sometimes when you meet someone new, I have friends who will kind of mentally say to themselves, you know, Rob, Rob, Rob. <laughs> they rehearse it in their heads. Right. As opposed to I kind of like to joke in a new situation at a party or a networking event is to just sort of excuse yourself to, to stand outside or to go to the bathroom mm -hmm. and mentally retrieve, okay, what are the names of the three people I just met yeah. instead of saying their names in your head? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, is that what you do with uh, learning students' names in your classes, yeah. something along those lines? Yep. Yeah. yeah, that's one of the techniques I use, um, and is to just practice. But also yeah. names are just hard because they're abstract. Right. Right. They're, you're Rob, but but I can memorize, you know, your glasses go yeah. with Rob somehow. Or I can make up a mnemonic, which yeah. can help. I can imagine you robbing a bank. Right. Right. But, but oh, then great. I have to like, yeah, <laughs> I have to picture you mm. And that just gets hard. So yeah. there are other ways to come up with mnemonics where, um, for instance, in my classes, I have everyone come up with a noun that starts with the same first letter as their name. 
Oh. So I, for instance, could be pepperoni puja, mm-hmm. which is my, my favorite pizza. The, oh, there you go. And that helps create something that is visually and mentally concrete right. with a name. So I once had a Vicky Velociraptor. Whoa. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> that is good. And I could kind of imagine her stomping into the classroom, yeah. and that'll help me remember, oh, okay, her name starts with a V, mm. and at least that's getting me somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, stomping into the classroom. <laughs> Mine's Radio Rob. I think oh. that's that. I, I came up with that once. Um, so I actually used one of your techniques in the classroom about yeah. an hour ago, and oh. it's funny. I, I was using um, one of your techniques. I've been using one all semester without even realizing it, relating to names, mm-hmm. because I do this thing like you, and I try to learn everybody's names as quickly as possible before the first class is over. Yeah. Although I make slips in the second week and things like that. I started asking them to name, okay, who wants to take a turn today to name all the other students yes. in the class? And the first few times, nobody wanted to play. Right. Now I've brought this up a couple of times, and people are actually excited about going and naming everybody in the yes. classroom. And it's not only fun to see that happen, that they actually think it's a cool thing to do, but I, I see like it, it actually is helping them bond a little yes. bit, even oh, around yeah. this one little thing. Yeah. Um, so I didn't even make that connection until just yeah. now that it's probably related to these kinds of techniques. Right. Well, and it reminds me about how it definitely knowing names, getting to know each other makes a big difference in the classroom, outside the classroom. Yeah. That's why politicians, for instance, try to remember people's names because it helps relate. And you had asked about creating an environment in a classroom right. around this, this, these kinds of memory techniques. And it, it makes me think about pub trivia. Hmm. So you go to a bar, you drink with friends. Do you play pub trivia, Rob? No, I've done it a few times. I I, I, I I know a lot about a couple of things and very little about a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't usually do that great in trivia. Yeah. I don't. I you? don't. No, I don't. I mean, I enjoy going to bars and drinking with friends, <laughs> but but I find it actually a little too high stakes uh, because I, I've been with friends and they get hyper competitive oh, about yeah. it, and I'm just there to eat pepperoni pizza and drink beer. Right. Um, and but a lot of people love pub trivia, mm-hmm. and it's you know a huge industry. You spend millions of dollars going to a bar and hanging out with friends and right. testing your knowledge. So in that context, or even watching Jeopardy at home, in that context, texting or. Uh, in that context, testing our memory is a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. But as soon as you walk into a classroom, students are like, you want me to do what? Yeah. You want me to memorize people's names? You want me to spit out what I know on an exam? It's really freaky. Yeah. Yeah. But in everyday life, we love showing off what we know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, well, and, and have you seen that if they are a little uncomfortable with this request initially, that over time, over the course of a semester, say, they get more comfortable with it and and uh, and sort of enjoy it and get yes. something out of retrieving. Yes, it's a, it's almost like a fun challenge. One example I like to give is instead of asking a, a kid, you know, what'd you learn in school today? And kids go, nothing. Mm-hmm. To just ask them, what'd you learn in school yesterday? Uh, and there's there's this fun switch to like mm-hmm. a mental challenge of, oh, what did I, I learn in class yesterday? Or what did I learn in school? Or what else did I learn yesterday? What did I learn from the chapter I just read right. in a book? Uh, and so people like these mental challenges. Yeah. But in the classroom, I, I think it's because exams are high stakes. Usually or sometimes mm. students may never retrieve until a high stakes midterm and until a high stakes exam. Cram. Right. Yeah. 
But if they're used to retrieving little by little, then it becomes fun, like your students' right. names in the classroom. And what I, what we did today was uh, the brain dump exercise. Um, at, we spent the first hour of class talking about doing research for their essays. And then <clears throat> in the last 10 minutes of class, like an hour later, I asked everyone to write down everything or anything they could remember, which is exactly what this exercise in your book tells people to do. Then I had them talk about it in pairs with each other, Mm -hmm. which is also in your book. And then we went around lightning round. Every pair had to say one thing that they learned, and I wrote these up on the board, and we wound up with like eight or nine, it was like an eight or nine bullet point recap of the early part of class. And I'm like, see, this is for you to help as you do some research this weekend. Right. And um, so I, I, it was really fun to just to try it and yeah. to see that they actually, first they resisted it, and by right. the, and five minutes later they had a, a really right. good experience. From and there they've retrieved yeah. notes of sorts. They haven't just blindly been transcribing what they've been learning. Right. You pause, they had to retrieve it. Now they've got stuff they can study from if they want. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Can you give me another example that sort of resonates in everyday life? Yes. <laughs> uh, in everyday life, we all sit through meetings. Mm, and everyone loves yes. meetings, right? Oh, yeah, they really do. Oh, yeah, the more the better. Love them. Yeah. And oftentimes, meetings start with a recap. Here's what we covered in our last meeting last week, or here are the minutes from last week, and you kind of go through them, and everyone you know, rolls their eyes. And that's just a recap of getting information into our heads. Mm. If you start meetings by saying, What's one thing you remember from our last meeting? People are going to be just like your students. They're going to be embarrassed because yeah. <laughs> they're forgotten, and that's a natural part of human memory. But then people will enjoy that challenge. Mm. And the more often you foster that sense of community, then the next time you have a meeting and people are ready for that question, what do you remember from the prior meeting? People will have fun retrieving. Yeah. They'll remember it better for the subsequent meeting. Mm -hmm. So instead of just starting with, here's what we did, is to just ask people, what did we do? Mm -hmm. That's it. And it's so simple. It doesn't take extra time. It makes it more engaging, and it helps people learn, so you don't have to keep recapping stuff either. Love it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's great advice for everyone out there, whether you're a teacher or not, because everyone goes to meetings. one thing that I haven't asked you about, and then we'll we'll start to wrap this up, but the, the process of writing this book, um, you've been engaged in this work for a long time, but um, what was it like to sit down and to do it with a collaborator and, and yeah. put this whole book together? What was that like? It was a new experience. I... <laughs> I've written a lot of research articles and published in academic journals, and I've always enjoyed taking research and translating it sort of into English, removing yeah. all the scientific jargon. Right. And then I like taking research and translating it into practice. What does this actually mean in life? But writing the book was a bit different in a way that it helped me reflect on my own teaching. It helped me reflect on, on the science of learning in a a kind of broader context. Mm -hmm. And having a collaborator really helps with that because then she'd challenge me in a way like, Pooja, that that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Or that's still too scientific-y. Or Frank, and Patrice is wonderful. She she and I have a great working relationship and she would just say, Pooja, that's boring. (laughs) Rephrase it a different Uh way, right? And so writing a book is new for me and in a different context than what I've written before. But it really helped me hone in on examples. Yeah. and strategies I could then use in my own classroom. So it, it's an evolving process. Mm-hmm. There are things in the book that I hadn't thought of until I started writing about them. And 
now that helps spark new ideas for me after yeah. writing the book. Mm -hmm. Logistically, we did it all on Google Docs. Oh, wow. And I, I'd love to look back over the past year. My guess is we sent fewer than 50 attachments in a year. Wow. And we didn't use Slack or anything like mm -hmm. that. It was just Google Docs. Mm -hmm. So we could collaborate in real time. We had it fairly well organized in she um, lives folders. Where? She lives in St. Louis. Oh, okay. And yeah. I live here in Boston. Right. I, I was joking the other day that why why didn't she and I write this book when I lived in St. Louis mm -hmm. for 13 years? Oh, that would have been nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we decided to write it when <laughs> I lived on, on a different time zone. Um, but it was all over Google Docs and video chats. Mm, interesting. And it worked really well. We would have video chats about every other week. And that also helped keep our, us both accountable mm. because we knew, all right, we got a to-do list. We've got notes um, in our Google Drive. I'm going to see her in two weeks, so I better keep on this. So yeah. even with teaching at Berkeley, I still had something I needed to accomplish every two weeks. Yeah, gotcha. So yeah. uh, just to have that rhythm to know that somebody was expecting you to keep things moving forward. Right. right. And deadlines help. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we all procrastinate. And so deadlines, you know, external deadlines help. But also in, in a, you know, professional working relationship with Patrice, having that accountability of, of setting, you know, we would set our, our video chats weeks in advance mm. so that we already knew we weren't going week by week, but kind of what we expected and what our timeline was between the starting line and the finish line. So what's next? Is there a subject in cognitive science or teaching that you're thinking of pursuing, writing about, incorporating into your own teaching? No. Nada. Shaking her <laughs> head no. All set. <laughs> um, I really have been having fun thinking about the parallels between music and learning yeah. and music and research on learning. And a lot of the research, again, in my small niche academic field, hasn't been done with musicians. Mm. But it's so, all of this research is intuitive and yet counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. And so Berkeley students understand they have to practice, they can't cram before a gig, but then they think completely differently when it comes to the liberal arts. So I'm still having a lot of fun yeah. pondering and thinking about those parallels. Yeah, they write their papers the night before, read right. the book. And the I don't blame week. them, it works. Yeah. I right. think students are really smart for cramming mm -hmm. because it works in the short term and there's a lot of research demonstrating that's the case. Yeah. yeah, and their, their focus is on the music, and they take a different approach to that. Right. Well, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thanks so much for talking today. Uh, I'm really happy to see you have accomplished this. You're an inspiration <laughs> to the rest of us to manage teaching and getting a book out. That's not easy to do. No, but I'm glad I did. Excellent. Thanks yeah. again, Pooja. Thanks, Rob. Learn more about Pooja Agarwal and the book at PowerfulTeaching.org. And now my pick of the week, independent bookstores. And yes, I know I have been doing this pick of the week thing, just recently started it, and typically it's a recommended piece of media, an article or a podcast or something. And it seems cliche, but yes, independent bookstores. I, in all the driving over Thanksgiving weekend, visited two Really great bookstores, one in Philadelphia, one in Baltimore, and I just wanted to mention them. The one in Philly is called Mostly Books Warehouse on Bainbridge Street in the Queen Village area. And it was this massive warehouse. That is what it was. It just went back further and further. All these little nooks and crannies of little half-constructed rooms and turns and labyrinths where all these books were. And um, I bought a book called How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll, an Alternative History of American Popular Music by Elijah Wald. 
I always knew about this writer, Elijah Wald. Uh, he wrote about music for the Boston Globe for many years. Um, and I wanted to read this book. And even though I'm a Beatles fan, I'm very interested in the idea that the Beatles destroyed rock and roll. So I look forward to checking that book out uh, and a really cool bookstore. And then there was the book Escape in the Federal Hill section of Baltimore. Also a very nice store, not as rambling and huge as the Philly store, but much more carefully put together, um, which isn't to denigrate the Philly store. Uh, they had less space, so they made really good use of it at the Book Escape in Baltimore, and also a bunch of books, a lot of books about music. And I picked up a Roseanne Cash memoir called Composed. So as we enter into the holiday season, stop by those independent bookstores, those used booksellers, and get yourself uh, some paper books. I know it seems antiquated and quaint, but um, it's a great thing to look for this time of the year matt jensen composed and recorded the theme music for this podcast he also composed and recorded the theme music for this podcast subscribe to the media narrative podcast and newsletter at themedianarrative.com i'm rob thanks for listening 